Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 151. In this episode, we're talking about contesting languages, tongues versus multilingualism with Dr. Ikaputra Tupamahu. Dr. Ikaputra Tupamahu is Assistant Professor of New Testament at Portland Seminary and George Fox University. And he's the author of the book that we're discussing today, Contesting Languages, Heteroglossia and the Politics of Language in the Early Church, published by Oxford University Press. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Jennifer Guo, Reverend Daniel Parham, Dr. Logan Williams, myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn, and introducing for the very first time, our newest team member, Dr. Sydney Tooth. Sydney, we're so excited to have you join the two cities team. Thanks so much, John. It's um, after a very long time of fangirling. It's a delight to join the team. So this conversation with Dr. Tupamahu was so interesting and illuminating. Lots to think about. What were all of your thoughts on this conversation? So Dr. Tupamahu has just released a book called Contesting Languages, published with Oxford University Press. And it's all about uh, heteroglossia, i.e. multilingualism in the early church. It specifically focuses on 1 Corinthians 14, in which Dr. Tupamahu argues uh, that the issue there uh, and what's being talked about in 1 Corinthians 14 is not unintelligible ecstatic speech, but rather multilingualism and its attendant struggles in various assemblies and church services. So we're going to talk about his book, and he's going to share with us all about it. And uh, it's some really interesting stuff. And really, oh, I, I found the book really, really compelling uh, and amazingly interesting and in, in, in illuminating. I really appreciated thinking about uh, diversity of languages in our churches. And I really appreciated his perspective as an immigrant and um, thinking about the influence of dominant language in churches. So I really appreciated thinking about that a lot more. Yeah. So I, was, as the kids say nowadays, shook because I love the Apostle Paul and I, you know, tend to think that all his insights are just incredible and great. And so based on Dr. Tupamahu's argument about um, the fact that what's going on in 1 Corinthians 14 is uh, multilingualism and not ecstatic speech, this would mean that Paul was trying to silence minority language speakers. And so that for me um, is very troubling because I am an Asian American. I've served in a lot of in, uh, Asian immigrant churches. Um, and yeah, I'm in, you know, dominant contexts and church contexts where sometimes I do speak Chinese. And so thinking from that perspective, that means that Paul is saying, no, you shouldn't do that. And so, yeah, like that, that's shaking me up and I need to think more about that. As a Pentecostal, you know, it's going to go around full circle. Uh, as a Pentecostal, it, there's a number of layers of complexity there. Also, as a as an ethnic minority uh, who speaks the dominant language and does not face the complexities of the issues of tongues, while also facing the complexities of issues of tongues by nature of my charismatic Pentecostal background, and so the the complexity of uh, Dr. Tupamahu's exposition of tongues and what Paul is communicating in that similar to Jen, but also divergent, I have to sit and wrestle with what is Paul truly communicating in a way that um, seems culturally polarizing and also seems to be 
detach from some of the other, I think, main passages that I think we'll discuss in, in this moment, right? So there's a untethering that seems to be happening as we're, as we're learning, and uh, it's given me an opportunity to reflect on how does my own tradition, especially in the turn of the 19th, 20th century, come to the positions that it holds now concerning tongues? Uh, and so Dr. Tubamahu gives us a complexity of understanding in terms of that. Yeah, there's a lot to lot to think about from multiple angles here. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Ikaputra Tupamahu. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Tupamahu. It's wonderful to have you back on the podcast again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So we're excited to talk about your new book with OUP, Contesting Languages. How about we begin by just hearing a little bit from you about what the thesis is? What are you trying to do with this book? So basically, this book argues that the idea or the phenomenon of speaking in tongues is not necessarily the reality of um, unintelligible aesthetic experience in the early Christian movement, but it is the phenomenon of multi-languages in the early Christian movement. So the book aims at examining Paul's discussion, particularly in 1 Corinthians 12 through 13, up through 14. Mainly the focus is on chapter 14 because that's he dwells in the discussion chapter 14. And uh, to see how he regulates linguistic linguistic diversity in uh, the Corinthian church. And to make a long story, I see um, the book of Acts and also the longer ending of Mark as some sort of competing narrative against Paul. So uh, the two different narratives that are going on in the early Christian, we are particularly presented in the text of the New Testament of uh, how they perceive themselves, how they see themselves in light of the multilingual world around them. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that, Dr. Tupamahu. I'm, I'm sure we're really excited to get into a lot of the details of, yeah. of your argument and, and how you how you flesh this out. Uh, but I have to ask as a kind of more personal question, given your background with the Assemblies of God, I'm very yeah. curious about how you see this work landing with charismatic Christians who perhaps disagree with you. Uh, and, and I'm just curious what, what you, how you would kind of situate your argument relative to the charismatic movement. Yeah. Uh, you know, as an author, you know exactly that, uh, you know, we write and our our writing is influenced by many different forces in our life, right? So we are not writing in vacuum or we are not writing in, um, you know, in nothingness. We are writing from a particular, particular experience and things like that. Yeah. I grew up in a Pentecostal tradition, but also at the same time, I am an immigrant in the United States. So there's a different force that shaped my thinking and my scholarship. So um, in the Pentecostal tradition, what what I think, if you read chapter one of the book, I did a little bit trace of history of why the idea of speaking in tongues became um, an aesthetic speech. And uh, from the 
early stage of like education movement, the second century, all, all the way to, you know, around 18th century, uh, almost unanimously, people read that particular passages in Acts, also in, in 1 Corinthians, as a multilingual phenomenon. And it is only in the late 19th, late 18th century that the, the German scholars begin to question the established view of tongues as a linguistic phenomenon and change it into an explosion of human feeling. So I, I highlight the work of uh, late, late 18th century German philosopher Johann Herder, uh, a student of Immanuel Kant, whose work has been deeply influential, particularly in establishing what we call a German Romanticism. And also he's an early thinker of German nationalism. So if you know German Romanticism, so the idea in the German Romantic tradition is that for the language, which there's, is very interesting because there's whole debate in the in the in the late nineteenth, late eighteenth century of you know where is the origin of language? Like how in the world woman, uh, uh, um, uh, human can speak this language that you know the structure of language where does it come from? So some 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 people in the late eighteenth century argue, oh, it's because of it's from God, you know, it's one of the you know the gift from God. And Johann Herder argued that no, 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 no. The origin of human language is human feeling. So for him, language is the production of human feeling, just like animal, just like dog barking or cat mewing. You know, it's the expression of the feeling. But because we have rationality, so our rationality makes our expression of human feeling more structured and more complex and things like that. So it's just a whole argument uh, that he put it right there. But what's interesting is that he has an he, he has an essay in which he questioned the idea that tongues is a is a is a is a multilingual phenomenon in the early Christian movement. Why? Because he thinks that as a people, ein Volk in German, right? If you know that Volk in German actually can mean uh, either people or nation we have that in our in our constitution right we the people so people represents not only the idea of commonality but also a nation so in i know das folk in german also is often translated as nation so for him as a people they cannot speak different languages. they don't need to speak different languages so he reject the idea that this is a this is a multilingual phenomenon so then he then uh, inserted the idea from this romantic philosophy that this is actually an explosion of early Christian feeling of excitement. And then he argues that the feeling of excitement is expressed through, he called it highly poet, poetical language, po sorry, poetic language, highly poetic language. Because for him, the higher a language is, or the higher the production of language is, the more engaging that language to human feeling. So that's the early stage. And then in the 19th century, there's a whole explosion of scholarship in the 19th century on speaking in tongues, taking up the work from Johann Herder. And then by the end of 19th century, tongues is already, has, was, is already understood as merely feeling and excitements and, and the linguistic element has already completely erased. So that actually came before the coming of Pentecostal movement in the early 20th century. So Pentecostal movement came early 20th century. 
And if you read early Pentecostal literature, they still understood tongues as multilingual phenomenon. It was later the biblical scholars from Pentecostal tradition begin to question that, to question their own tradition. Gordon Fee spent page after page to argue in his commentary of First Corinthians. So, so much as I respect him, I disagree with his reading. That he said this is not a language. This, this is not a language uh, phenomenon. This is you know a different thing altogether. So um, it was later that Pentecostal began to switch at the understanding from from this is a linguistic phenomenon and a gift from God and things like that to the idea that this is an ecstatic gift speech that is ununderstandable. So this came later, actually. Early Pentecostals still believe that this is a linguistic So in a way, early Pentecostals still follow the pre-modern, if we, you know, like if we mark, you know, enlightenment in the 18th century as the marker of modern modernity, then pre-modern reading of of uh, speaking in tongues, Pentecostals still follow that pre-modern reading of speaking in tongues as a linguistic phenomenon. It was later the biblical scholars begin to question the Pentecostal experience. They, they, you know, this is a, you know, if you read early Pentecostal literature, like, when I spoke in tongues last night, it was like Russian language or something like that. <laughs> you know? So they think this is an actual human language. And it was like, it was then later understood as uh, as no, this is not this isn't a static speech, something that you know that is not understandable. But anyway, this is not an understandable speech altogether. So yeah, it's a, it's very interesting. Uh, so the reason why I I put the heteroglossia in the beginning of as a, as a subtitle of this book is because is because I want to contrast it with the idea of glossolalia. The phenomenon in the New Testament, I think it's First Corinthians chapter fourteen, is not glossolalia. Even the word glossolalia doesn't does not exist at all in the New Testament. It was the product of nineteenth century German scholarship. They use that term, and then you know if you read like for instance chapter uh, First Corinthians fourteen, this there's a quotation from Hebrew Bible here by the people of strange tongues. That word in in Greek is only one word. It's heteroglossia. So I said, why don't we reclaim this term that Paul actually uses in the New Testament and talk about speaking in tongues? So speaking in tongues is actually diversity of languages. So, um, so how do we think about it? Going back to your question again, how do we think about it as Pentecostal? I, say, I, I would say that if they want to see their phenomenon and want to think about their phenomenon theologically or socially, maybe they should find another grounding textual grounding instead of 1 Corinthians or Acts chapter 2, you know, because those texts actually about multiplicity of languages. So maybe, you know, some like oh, Gordon Fee has a, has a fantastic article on Romans chapter 8, uh, you know, the groaning, you know, uh, the creation groans, and, and he argues that that's the, that kind of groaning is, is speaking in tongues. That probably can be, can be a site of theological reflection for this current current phenomena of quote in God. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think we should call it tongues altogether because the word tongue in Greek glossa is everywhere. It's useful language, everywhere, everywhere. It's just the invention of the 19th century German scholarship that think that this is, a, this is an aesthetic experience. I'd like to ask a clarifying question then, Dr. Tavamako, are you um, saying that in 1 Corinthians 14, what we have is heteroglossia, but you're not denying that there's a glossolalia elsewhere in the New Testament? 
Yeah, well, yeah, that's a good question. I I think that we the, the word glossolalia itself is problematic, right? Because glossolalia in Greek, um, it, they just combine it and make it a compound word. But you know, as a compound word, it doesn't it's, it's non-existent in the New Testament. So you know, even like, do we even like if how you know how we think about like signifier, right? what kind of signifier we want to use to explain this? Um, I I wouldn't even call it glossolalia because glossolalia, you know, is basically related to the reading of this text, right? And they project that idea. It's very interesting because in the early 18th century, there's a whole movement of quote unquote glossolalic movement in England called um, you know Irving movement. Uh, many scholars, many commentators in the 19th century point to Irving movement as an example of modern glossolalia. I think that's very, very interesting. And then 20th century later, they point to the, they point to the Pentecostal movement as a phenomenon of glossolalia, and then pair it as though that phenomenon in the, in the Pentecostal phenomenon now is what happens in the Corinthian church. And my argument is that you know it's a different. It, two, these are two different phenomena altogether. What happened in First Corinthians? First Corinthians, or whatever, what happened in Corinthian gathering, is not this ecstatic people fall, falling on this ground and speak with gibberish. No, it's not. It is a phenomenon of multilingual, normal multilingual phenomenon. And in Paul's discussion here is the way he frame it. Right? Paul always see things from a theological frame, and what happened is we always so obsessed with here theology, and we often forget that there isn't. There's, there's a social dynamic behind his theology, right? So the dynamic here is a multilingual dynamic. So when he said that if you speak in a tongue, do, in verse, verse two, for instance, for those who speak in a tongue, do not speak to other people, but to God. Yeah, some people argue that this is a prayer and things like, I, you know, it's okay if you must say it's a prayer, but what is the force of rhetoric here? He's trying to say that when you speak in a foreign language, nobody would... Here in Greek, yeah, it, it's the word aquo here, right? The word here is not the the next statement. Statement is uh, is that for nobody understand them. Paul is saying that you know if you speak in a foreign language, nobody understand. You just speak to God, not because that language is ununderstandable or that language is gibberish. It's because Paul doesn't understand. Or the dominant people who speak Greek by way at the time in, 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 in Corinth, they didn't understand. So that's why don't speak in a tongue. It's very interesting because Paul uses a tongue and tongues. How do you even distinguish ecstatic speech singular and ecstatic speech plural? Right? It's, how do you even distinguish that? In language, it's easy. I mean, there's multiple multiplicity language, and there's one national language, you know, not, or like, you know. So it's it, making that distinction between a tongue and tongues, right? Between glossé and glossais in, 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 in Greek is easy, but if you see it as a linguistic phenomenon, but how do you make this, this, this distinction between a you know, singular and plural if you understand it as a static speech? I ask, um, looking at chapter 13, verse 1, what you think Paul might be doing with bringing in angels at that point because coming from a non-Pentecostal background I think that's the bit um, people tend to struggle with is they like to just explain away the angels bit or not really know what to do but I'd love to hear your take on that. I think Robert Gundry 
has an S has an article about it. And he and I I like the way he reads it. Um, he, this is how he reads. If I speak in tongues of mortals or human tongues, right? And the word kai here and in Greek. So um, he argues that this is an sort of an acceleration of rhetoric. So if you speak in human languages, even language of angels or language and you know even language of angels. And if you don't have love, so like even so, you know, instead of like understanding it as a as an end, right? Kai can mean even as well. So um, maybe it's an, it's just because you know, rhetoric something you do from like lower element of rhetoric, and then you add to it to 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 add force to your argument. And he's basically saying that you know, even 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 if even if you speak the language of angels, if you don't have love. So the, the point is not the language of angel itself. The point is to contrast this with love in a way. Dr. Tupamahu, you, you mentioned that there was a, a pivoting in the early 20th century. And I, I know that that was kind of at the, the rise of the modern Pentecostal movement. But what was the hermeneutical pivot? Like what, what was the crux that changed between that, that point of a distinguishing a distinguisher between what was known as tongues and, and what was not? Was there one key point was there one key theologian that that shaped that moment? Yeah, um, as I have explained before, that the the idea that tongues is an is an explosion of human feeling, excitement, to a point in which it's no longer a linguistic expression, has already established before the coming of Pentecostal movement. It's ex already established in the in 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 the nineteenth century German scholarship. So Pentecostal movement came later. So. Um, who are among Pentecostal who changed that view? I, I would say Grondon Fee is one of them. Uh, Alan Anderson has a book in which he explains why Pentecostals changed their view because maybe, you know, they, you know, buy a ticket, they think like they would speak different language in Russia or something like suddenly the spirit's gonna give. And then it didn't, it, you know, it didn't happen. So they somehow they have to change the mind about uh, you know, this phenomenon, right? Probably that could be a reason, but you know, the way that even biblical scholars argue that this is not. A linguistic phenomenon, I think, has something to do also with the establishment of biblical scholarship prior to even prior to the coming of the Pentecostal movement in the 20th century. I think it's not necessarily Pentecostal experience, it's actually German nationalism. You know, if you know that early German nationalism began from like late 18th century, German unification, remember German. Um, kingdoms are a lot of different German kingdoms, right? In the early early 19th century, and they they think of how do we unify this kingdom? And early German thinkers like Johann Herder argues that the mark of a nation is the language. Why again Romanticism? Because language comes from human feeling, and if we have this collective feeling, then there's something in us that actually unites us. So there's a there's a there's a, a book called A Speech to German People, German People, something like that, you know, uh, by Fichte, in which he argues that our language is better than French, for instance, because you know French is a borrowed language <laughs> from Latin. Our language it comes from das folk, from that people, right? Our language is better, you know, um, and and that particular idea influences the way they read the New Testament. 
And, you know, as, as a Jews, they say that it's very interesting because he has some very anti-Semitic statement about the Jews also. But he said that they cannot speak different language. At one point, he said they are stubborn and things like that. So it's very interesting. Uh, and, and it's it's very interesting because, you know, reading Herder and then if you read um, people like uh, Slaimacher in the early 19th century, the same repetition of how stubborn the Jewish people is, is repeated also, that kind of argument. So... Uh, so, so they say that, no, these people cannot speak different languages. They just have to speak one language as a people. So it was influential in the, in the shape of scholarly understanding of what tongues really is. In, so, and in the 20th century, if you read literature, people take this as a, take, take it for granted that this is an aesthetic speech kind of experience. One of the things that I find really fascinating about Paul's argument, especially in chapter 14, is the way that he appeals to Isaiah 28. You mentioned this already. This is where heteroglossia uh, comes from. And what I think is so interesting about his use of Isaiah is in in the context, Isaiah is addressing the priests and the prophets who um, have kind of lost their way, and they're described as having drunken speech and the hebrew is actually uh unintelligible and it's it's um you know translated differently but most most scholars think it's scatological language that it's referring to vomit and feces etc and it's just interesting that paul makes use of this, so you got this this text about unintelligible language that is rooted in you know the dr- drunkenness of the priests and the prophets who aren't aren't able to lead effectively or teach and prophesy and represent God effectively, and and Paul's applying this in Corinth. I'm just curious, what do you make of this this use of Isaiah 28, and how do you think yeah. it works in the argument, especially the way that you're reading it? That's that's a very interesting question because if you read in in chapter chapter three, I had a whole discussion about that, but I focused mainly on the way Paul used the particular text and and the change. For instance, in Hebrew, it is uh, stammering lips to uh, you know lips of foreign people in 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 in, in Corinthians and First Corinthians, and also like the 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 in Masoretic text is actually a foreign tongue. Right, and uh, in Septuagint is another tongue. In Paul, in First Corinthians, it becomes heteroglossia. So Paul seems to be very feel, uh, freely in using his sources, right, in changing the text. <laughs> changing the text is very interesting because we are so afraid of changing the text, right? Like you know, you know, it, like in the Book of Revelation, if you change, it, you add, you add more, you add disaster to your life. Paul changes it here. And it's it just shows how early, like Paul's hermeneutics is very free in the use of biblical text and and how he he like this quotation is just taken out of that without even giving him. Paul even doesn't feel the burden of giving a context to it. Like, you know, like regular, you know, if we write a book and we we always try to, you know, like explain the context of that particular quotation we take. Paul seems to be very free about it. And my argument is that Paul takes this and basically apply it to the multiple languages in the, in, in the Corinthian church and, and use particularly changing from a language to heteroglossia to 
other languages. You know, it depends on how we understand the word heteros in, in Greek, right? Other language or foreign languages or whatever you want to use that. But the, there's an element of like other languages or diverse languages or different languages. Depends on how you understand the word uh, hetero. But the word hetero is not in the in in the Septuagint or even in the in the Masoretic text in the, in Hebrew. It's actually singular. He makes it plural here in Acts. So I, I argue that this is, this is an act of appropriation of the text to the context of the struggle of this particular community in uh, Corinth at the time. Right, because in Isaiah, the, the judgment is that a foreign language will be heard because their own priests and prophets are speaking unintelligibly uh, because of drunkenness, and there will be this other unintelligible language, but it's an actual known language that will that will um, be heard, implying that they will be taken over by an oppressor. Um, so, so there is an actual known language that is that is there in yeah. even in the context of Isaiah. Yeah, and and and, and be, because even even in that language, they don't hear, right? Is this it's the force of the argument, uh, particularly in Isaiah, and and yeah, and. Again, um, I think just from this quotation, I think we can see, we can detect to me, we can detect that Paul is actually not dealing with the drunkenness. Paul is actually dealing with the actual language. Yeah. And then the actual language, the actual language is not the language of the Assyrian. If we take these, you know, Assyrians who speak to them, you know, uh, but the language, but he turns it into the multiplicity of language, heteroglossia. It's a free adaptation and appropriation, reappropriation of the text. So with the understanding of the issue here being a multilinguistic phenomenon rather than ecstatic speech, then it would seem like Paul is trying to silence speakers of languages other than the majority language. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's a bit troubling to me. And I'm sure maybe to you as well, because we both, our native languages are not the majority language. So now with this interpretation, it seems like Paul is trying to silence all the other languages. And so, oh, that, yeah. That, that's precisely what Paul is doing. That's yeah. precisely what Paul is doing. And he packaged it in the theological language, right? You speak to God, you know, you don't speak to human beings. Nobody understands you. Not because nobody understands the language, not because that language is ununderstandable, it's because you don't understand it. Or the people in the dominant language, the dominant group don't understand it. And Paul argues again in the, in the, in the next part of the chapter 14 is that if you, you know, if you in you have to pray so that you'll be able to, to, to translate. So he demands for translation. And, and uh, people will argue, oh, what kind of translation? Because why it doesn't make sense. If it's gibberish, how do you translate? Translate is always from one meaningful language to the target meaningful language. I, otherwise, you just make stuff up, you know, if you trans, quote unquote translate gibberish, right? You just make stuff up. Translation is always like that. And, uh, you know, he demands translation. And as he said, if there is no translation, you have to be silent. So there's a force of silencing. And that's why I call it the politics of language here, right? Because he politicizes it. He finds it troubling to see people coming together and speaking different languages. It's chaotic for him. 
So you have to pray, so you translate, or one by one only, you know, he said, speak and translate. And there's no translation, you have to be silent. And I find it like, you know, as in like, Jen, yeah, I find it very troubling. And, you know, as a, that's why I'm reading this as a, from an immigrant experience. So, you know, I try to tell a story to make a narrative in my book that Corinth is a city of immigrant. And yes, the language in public spaces are mainly Greek or Latin. That doesn't mean that minority languages did not exist in the first century Roman Corinth because epigraphic evidence don't represent the actual reality of language. So, you know, if somebody from 2000 years from now come to Portland and then do an excavation, they would find a book in English and they would think like this guy, Ekaputa Tupamau writes very well in English. He must be an English speaking person. But if you see the name, you know exactly if you do a prosopographic analysis, right? This name is not a, an English name. Oh, right. Isn't that John or Peter or something like that, right? Or, you know, Drew or something like that. <laughs> it's a strange name. Oh, this must be not, a, you know, not an English-speaking person. But, you know, you have to, in a way, it, the hardest thing for me is to construct, to make this argument. Because the, the, the evidence is almost not, a, there should be a leap of imagination. To, to, to make that argument from, from written evidence, from epigraphic evidence and looking into like, you know, there's a whole catalog of minority, uh, minor minor uh, artifacts in Corinth. I have to look into that, looking at, you know, Egyptians, uh, you know, materials and things like that in, in Corinth. But there is, I think it's, it, it can, the case can be made that this is a, this is a, a, a place of multilingual space. You know, Corinth has these games called Ismian games in which you know, it's a pan-Hellenistic games that people come from all over the place to come to, to celebrate, to you know, compete and things like that. So if that is the case and, you know, the report that connects the eastern part of the Mediterranean and the western part of the Mediterranean can be made, then it is understandable that when they get together, they would speak different languages. And I think 1 Corinthians 14 is a window is one of the evidence that we can look into the multilingual, multilingual reality of the city of Corinth in the Roman period. And Paul look at this and it's Paul like, and as an immigrant, I feel like this, the kind of argument that Paul puts feels like English only movement kind of argument, right? You have to be silent, speak just dominant language because dominant language, he, he calls it prophecy because dominant language builds up the church. That's what his argument is. So, 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 yeah, that's that's precisely my feeling too. That's what led me actually to write this book, to show that there is an element of serious political struggle here that needs to be brought to the surface in our conversation of the multiplicity of languages, particularly in the early Christian movement. So then, it seems like Paul is calling for the minority language speakers to sacrifice something of themselves for the good of the church for the building up of the church then yeah 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 he argues that uh, you know it seems to me like he argues that only 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 the dominant language can build up the church and like for instance i i have a whole section in my book that i talk about the you know silencing of women here 
And, you know, scholars argue, oh, this is actually a later interpolation until, you know, Philippine would argue for a late, this is a later interpolation. But I mean, feminist scholars have already argued, no, this, this is actually not interpolation. This is part of the, of Paul's argument. But I think one of the, the, the idea that I want to offer is that this is probably a feminization of, of minority languages and the masculinization of the dominant language. So, so for instance, you know, the word as, I use as here as a, as, a, as a way of connecting it because as just like. So it's as though Paul is actually adding another argument to the whole discussion here. Just like in other church of the saints. Now, if you turn this into a woman into uh, like uh, into uh, tongue speaker or minority language speakers, you can translate it this way. The trans, the, or trans not translate, but transposition here, you can transpose it this way. Like, as all in the church of science, women or just like that, or, or, or the minority language speakers should be silent in churches for they are not permitted to speak exactly this. You can see the consistency of argument of the silencing of, of, of uh, minority languages. That, so there's a feminization of, of, of uh, minority language speakers and masculinization of the dominant language. So the, the power relation is still depicted quite clearly in that particular text. I think this brings up uh, it brings up a lot of complexity, right? Because it, I guess it shows the kind of pastoral, sociological, theological tension, right, that comes with trying to fuse a church together. And, and I guess it's interesting too, thinking in a first century context when there is no other model likened to this. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's interesting to, to to understand the mind of Paul in that moment, right, and and how those those two statements in of themselves have created so much friction within the church. Um, it, it's just, it's it's interesting to, to think of this, the, the dominance and how much do you think that, um, how much of the cultural lens by which Paul was in, like being a Roman citizen as well, infused uh, that argument? Yeah, Roman citizen is very interesting because Roman, the idea of Paul in Roman citizen is actually from the book of Acts. Paul himself never talked about it. So, you know, scholarship in question, if it is really a true, you know, this description of Paul, right? Even like whether he grew up in Arsus of, or in Jerusalem has been like questioned by scholars, right? Maybe he was actually just was born in, in Tarsus and then he grew up in, in Jerusalem, right? Um, so, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking particularly works of people like, uh, you know, Martin Hengel, for instance. Again, the, the, the idea of he's a Roman citizen is, is, uh, has been challenged by scholars. But the, the fact that he is a diaspora Jew or diaspora person who probably speaks Greek and probably only Greek or maybe Hebrew too, probably. It depends on how we understand even our text, right? Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't even quote Hebrew anything you know, at all in his uh, uh, letters. So um, he, he, he grew up in this environment of Greek speaking world, right? And um, he seems to think, this is his, at least from First Corinthians, he seems to think that a good social order has to be arranged around monolingualism. 
around the use of one language. And what I, I find very interesting is that Acts chapter 2 has, like, Acts chapter 2 borrow ex- almost the same expression, like uh, speaking in tongues. And if you see that phrase, that phrase doesn't appear anywhere. Uh, so, so some scholars argue that this is uh, Paul he is the one who coined this particular term, speaking in tongues. It's a uniquely Pauline term. So it got picked up by Luke in Acts chapter 2. So there must be some connection right there. There must be some connection. It seems to me historically somebody, whoever, maybe, you know, who, how do we understand who Luke is? Somebody in the late first century or early second century look at Paul's behavior in first Corinth in, in the Corinth in, in the city of Corinth and created another another what do you call it narrative of the early stage open of, of Jesus movement and place tongue in the beginning and opening it. So I think this is a, a competing narrative against Paul. So instead of demanding translation, they just open it like that. And everybody hears. It's very interesting. The same word is used to, so Paul said, nobody hears, nobody understands. In, in, in Acts chapter 2, they hear, right? Them, they hear them speaking in their own native languages. So, you know, there's no even need for translation. They hear, they understand. And, uh, you know, and they were amazed. And these Galileans speak our language. I find it fascinating. Galileans, right? Because Galileans are those who are like, you know, in, like not in the, at the center of, you know, the, 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 that region's life in, you know, the life of people in, in that region in Jerusalem. They're from Galilee. So Mark Cheney from Southern Methodist University has argued that the, the language in Galilee is probably Aramaic. They probably don't speak Greek. Even though the, the inscriptions are mainly, many inscriptions are in Greek. Maybe they, they're speaking actually Aramaic. Precisely the argument is that, you know, inscriptions don't represent the actual reality of, of language. If that is the case, then, you know, these Galileans not speaking, you know, Greek language, speak our languages. So it seems like Luke is depicting something fascinating that, you know, even people at the fringe of the society, at the edge of the society, who don't speak the language of them, of the dominant, can speak different languages. How much more? People in Corinth. Why do you even have to silence them? Why it feels it feels really like you know if if these English speaking people like you know it seems like you know if us immigrants learn to speak English why don't you speak our language too why in the world can't you even learn our language but look package it just like Paul too in terms of like sort of baptism and Holy Spirit but I, I'm more interested in the question of the social and political dynamic of the, instead of just theological element of that or theological aspect of that. Just picking up on that, what are some of your suggestions thinking about the problematic image of Paul and what he says here that this creates and how we read it and apply it today? Um, What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, again, as I mentioned, I I wrote this really uh, from the perspective of a minority language speaker in the United States. And in which churches, for instance, if you 
people think about church, you know, there's a famous statement that the 11th hour on Sunday is the most segregated hour. Uh, sure, it's it's it reflects the the segregation, racial segregation in America, in America. But don't forget that 11 hour is the most linguistically seg- segregated space in the United States too. And you know, I was a pastor of Indonesian Church when I was in Southern California, and we often get very different treatment. Even like if you if you see the relationship between English speaking church and uh, quote unquote ethnic churches underneath that church or within the church, typically the immigrant church who speak non-English language would get like basement as a space. Even in the arrangement of space, you can tell the arrange, the relation of power between the, the dominant linguistic community and the minority linguistic community. The Spanish-speaking people, the Korean-speaking people, uh, you know, and Indonesian or Urdu-speaking people. So it really the challenge that I, I hope that this book can, can host is that can we imagine a space of hospitality? At the end of that, I talk about hospitality in which we are radically open to difference, even, even when difference is so disorienting and discomforting, right? It's, it's, it's shocking and it's disorienting, but can we... Th- Think of a church. If we, if we appropriate in a in a church, I can we can talk about like even the society. We don't go far to the society at the church. Like when we talk about like for instance, you know, multi-ethnic church. What do we mean by that? Because multi when it comes to language, everyone is still subjected under the dominance of the colonial language, which is English. Everyone. And the argument is always like, we have to, the argument is always, I always hear all, of the, all the time, oh, we have to make sure that everybody understands. That's why everybody is. But why English though? Why English? So it, it's, it's, it can be disorienting. Even the Greeks would call people who don't speak Greek, barbarian, right? blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I just, not because that language is un- understandable. It's because you don't understand as a Greek person. <laughs> and then you just, so, you know, it's a slur in a way, you know, that, particular word Paul based Paul actually uses that word in first Corinthians chapter 14 barbarian if you speak in tongues to me I'll be barbarian to you and you will be barbarian to me that's what Paul said in first Corinthians he doesn't want to be barbarized in a way right so I think that's the challenge of like hospitality the opening the space for the difference and particular linguistic difference the multiplicity of languages so it's interesting to me that, as you discussed, you you read Luke as kind of um, situating the issue uh, a bit differently from Paul um, and, and perhaps challenging um, the perspective. I'm kind of drawn to this idea that there seems to be some, some connection between um, drunkenness, as I brought up earlier with Isaiah 28, that's that's there even in Acts 2, because of course, when they when they speak um, in these different languages, the people around are like, oh, you know, they're they're all filled with new wine, glucose there. And I'm thinking there's there's kind of some reverberation of this kind of phenomenon. I think we even see it in uh, 1 Samuel with Hannah, right? She's praying and because Eli doesn't know what she's saying, uh, you know, he thinks she's drunk. Uh, and, and just this this kind of commonality of like 
not understanding speech connected to drunkenness in some way. I'm, I'm just wondering some thoughts that you might have on this kind of biblical theme. I find it fascinating because, uh, you know, so many people have already read Acts 2 from like Bacchae, right? The experience of Bacchae, uh, you know, that this woman gets crazy and, you know, they, the, the God of Dionysus, the God of wine. I think I, I think it has something to me it has something to do with that, with the idea of or with the fact that uh, when the language is not understand is not understandable, that can be seen as as socially unacceptable practices, just like drunkenness, in which you lose your rationality. Right. And and it's very interesting. Paul actually has the same, like Paul said, if if somebody comes in to you and then you just, they will think that you're mad. You know, it is the same theme going on there, right? The same thing going on there. And I still remember uh, uh, you know some Indonesians in Nashville, Indonesian students, they were in a bus and then they spoke Indonesian language because you know, if you're around people who speak your language, you would speak your language you don't want to speak english you know many of these people like english because english is second language sometimes the english is not like super correct english there's so, it's so even hard to speak english so they speak this book their own language so after they spoke as you know i'm not after sorry um you know when the bus stop a, a, a guy came to them and just berated them and said why do you why do you speak why, why don't you speak English here? So it's very disorienting for this person to see this as like, maybe like, you know, Paul is a madness to speak different language in public space. And he came down from the, from the bus. So I think, again, like what I pointed out before, that uh, language difference can be very disorienting. Very disorienting. And the challenge is how do we accept this orientation as a way to conduct our social life? And I imagine, honestly, I imagine that during the 1960s, for instance, when people argue for this segregation, it's a very disorienting moment also for many white communities when schools have to be have to be dis- dis- desegregated. Some people even refuse to do. How in the world are we going to sit with you know black kids and you know people of color kids in the, in, in the school system? I feel like this the same way when it comes to languages is very disorienting. But it's not impossible, though. I feel like it's not impossible. Like there are schools these days, immersion schools, right? You know, you have like Spanish immersion. It's still possible to have education, for instance in a multilingual space or multilingual manner. It's still possible to have a church life. Can we even think about church life in which our liturgy is consists of multilanguages instead of only English? And that's, I hope people would think through it as they read the, this book, yeah. Dr. Tupamahu, it's such a complex and invigorating uh, discussion to have, right? Along, along these lines, particularly, I think, uh, as uh, the Pentecostal movement has become, you know, over over several decades, uh, the largest Protestant Christian movement, 
in uh, and, and, and tongues being such an emphasis of uh, of the movement uh, to, to think of a path forward and how your writing will lead to greater clarity. What would you say is like the, the, the theological pinnings that the church should wrestle with in regards to your writing that actually allow us to see pneumatology and its manifestations in a more clear way? Well, that's a great question. Again, one of the things that I wrestle with is the idea of how do we, as Christians, how do we deal with difference, particularly linguistic difference? America, particularly, has a very warfare-like mentality when it comes to difference. We, we just love going to war and you know making war with people. And it comes to even a discursive, at the discursive level, right? You know, if you go to uh, Twitter, for instance, it becomes a war space in a way, <laughs> right? The mean you are, the, the more attention you get. And, and in a way that, uh, you know, social media also exploits this culture. I, I, I think that we need to think about difference in a different way, <laughs> difference in a different way. Right? Can we embrace difference and let, dif- let let the other be the other instead of subjecting the other into some sort of like the imagined sameness? Imagine sameness. So, you know, here I find like Jack Derrida's work super, super helpful in which he talks about radical hospitality that you know, when somebody comes in front of the door, he said that radical hospitality means you don't even have to ask the name where that, that person comes from. You just open the door. It can be a monster, but you just have to open the door. Now, theologically, can we think about this theologically? Is our God is the God that even like, if, just, just think about God in terms of difference, right? Is our God is the God that, you know, combat difference or the God that opens the space for people to be different. And that's just the reality. Difference is a reality. I always tell my students that if you come to my class, you will hear and read people from different perspectives. And you just have to live that. You either erase that difference. I grew up in, in Indonesia in which uh, the government actually force us because in 19, uh, 1965 Indonesian government has uh, you know killed about you know close to a million people in massacre of communists in Indonesia and every year we have to rehear the story from the government of a, a, a movie made by the government everybody has to read every year in school so there's a way in which the government only offer one single story in which difference is erased. So if you have a different opinion about what happened in 1965, the government is going to kick you out. So that kind of authoritarian sort of space, are we going to go to that direction of authoritarian sort of way? Or we want to go to a direction in which we open for multiplicity of difference? And, and language is is actually at the center of that, particularly in in the discussion that I, I put in my book. So theological hospitality, think about it. They're like, 
like look frame it as a, as a work of the spirit right it's the work of the spirit when you know when the spirit comes upon them and they begin to speak different languages so look frame it as a as a work of the spirit yeah so to what extent do you think that the insights that you offer were not picked up by other interpreters precisely because i would imagine that most biblical scholars modern biblical scholars have been native speakers of the dominant language of their area i just think of how much you brought in yeah. uh like knowledge of you know studies and and theories about um you know people be, immigrants being in uh, you know different linguistic contexts and i just imagine I, I just wonder what it would be like if like actually 80% of the interpreters in biblical studies uh, were immigrants who uh, were non-native speakers of the dominant language of their area. Like, would that have produced different results? Yeah, I, I think I in, in, that just highlights how important it is positionality in biblical scholarship, right? And I think that, you know, the, I, again, as I explained, the reason why tongues somehow turned into anesthetic speech Precisely because of 19th century sort of nationalist and also uh, romanticist space that formed that particular interpretation, and I think the reason probably I you know I might be wrong, but the reason why this issue of linguistic difference and immigrant experience and things like that don't come up very often in biblical scholarship, precisely because of what you just said, you know. Because people just, you know, use the, the dominant language. They can just pick up their stuff today and then, you know, go to Thailand and speak the, <laughs> the English language in Thailand, right? They don't see language as a site of struggle. As as I was about halfway through your chapter of, of I think, chapter three or four, on um, where you kind of lay out the kind of interpretive positions about why tongues is probably heteroglossia, and you kind of go through all the you know, Isaiah 28, 11, et cetera. Um, I just started thinking like, uh, I positioned myself, you know, hypothetically, of like, what if I were um, somebody who was in, you know, a context where yeah, yeah. Um, my, where like the, 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 the modern language I know the best is Hebrew. So like, if I were in a, in a, in a church that was mostly speaking Hebrew, um, what, how would I then read this text? And funnily enough, um, a lot of things like fell into place before you even offered what you said. So then when I got to, oh, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. I was like, oh yeah, well, mine is unfruitful because uh, you're not doing any work. Yeah. yeah. Like you're not putting in any efforts to translate exactly. and thus make it helpful for people because yeah. Karpos is the, something that's helpful for other people. Yeah, and I, was like, oh, I wonder if that's what he's going to say. And then, and then that's exactly what you said, but it was like, it was just like flip, flicking a switch of like, what if I were in a different context and all of a sudden, like just really what seemed to be like, like not really, uh, not like, pretty straightforward readings of these texts once yeah. you just kind of take that position. And yeah. I'm not, yeah. I don't, I don't want to say like, well, your book is really straightforward. It's, it's excellent. But I mean, in the sense of like, you know, once you kind of lay out what you do in the beginning, yeah, yeah. like everything just kind of like really naturally falls. It into sense, place. Yeah. It's amazing how just like that positionality switch really yeah. just changes so much that, that, that's what I'm, I'm i'm hoping to invite readers to be able to hear from the other side right to hear from the margins voices from the margins you know i pastor a church in southern california people don't have political social capitals at all 
right? You know, they want to, they don't even have like strong position in American society. Many of them are simple workers, you know, drivers and things like that. They don't have any voice in political dynamics or they don't have political capital here. So that's where so disorienting when I was in biblical studies gathering and people talk about things that are not the struggle of these people at all. And can we bring the experience here to the scholarship and the question they ask on a daily basis, how do I deal with this dominant language that keeps forcing me on a daily basis to speak better English? And everybody who knows different language will know that you will never, ever achieve 100%. Josephus struggled with that, right? In at the end of his antiquity, he said that I'm struggling to attain perfection in my, uh, what do you call it, um, you know, uh, uh, pronunciation of Greek because, because of the habit of my mother tongue. There's no way. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 a daily in, you know, in against Apion, he actually said that he uses uh, assistance, right? And he said precisely because of the Greek language. And I, when I was reading it, Josephus, you're my friend now, yeah, because when I write in English, my writing is messy, you know, when you read my writing and it looks good, it has been ironed out, not because I'm, I know how to use this language, because another person, my proofreader, actually helps me to iron out my language. And, and when I read that in, 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 in Against Apion, I was like, yes, Joseph, I'm with you. Yes, I understand that struggle. What's funny is that now when, when you know, when you when we go read Josephus, I mean, gosh, Josephus' Greek is like, you know, sometimes yeah, pretty tricky. So like, actually, no, it's the Greek of his assistants. Yeah, uh, it's, not, it's not his Greek. Yeah. <laughs> Synergoi, right, in Greek. Synergoi. Yeah. <laughs> right, those, those, those assistants, right? And he said, you know, pros, for the, in Greek it's pros, there was a word pros, for the Greek language, Greek phone. And it's, it's very, usually they use the Greek, uh, Greek uh, what do you call it, uh, but the word phone is used in that particular passage. So uh, I, I was just like, I can relate to this. So when I read this particular text in 1 Corinthians 14, I can't relate to Paul's, this uh, rhetoric and these courses. I actually put myself as a, one of these tongue speaker and to hear this force of, of, of discourse. Well, Dr. Tupamahu, I've been looking forward to this conversation ever since we last had you on to talk about whiteness and biblical scholarship. You had told us a little bit about what you were working on, and I was just so intrigued, and it's it's wonderful to hear from you. I hope everybody checks out your new book, Contesting Languages. It's wonderful to you know engage this kind of paradigm shift that might be a little unsettling for those of us with a particular uh, charismatic background, or even just in light of what this does with how we understand Paul's strategy, that could be unsettling. And just just appreciate you kind of bringing this to our attention and, and connecting it to issues of linguistic hegemony even in in our culture. So I just really appreciate everything that you shared with us today. Thank you for inviting me.